0: Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Trail of the Bat Beasts, Man of the Mist Book 1, written by Daryl Purcell. A fun and wild pulp adventure. Fans of pulp heroes like The Shadow, The Spider, The Black Bat, and The Avenger will adore this new pulp magazine inspired series. Avenging justice moves unseen in the night mist. Then a black-clad hand emerges to grasp and destroy evil. The man of the mist has struck yet another blow against crime. The ones who live whisper of him from their jail cells. I heard an eerie voice from the fog, they say tremblingly. Crime is the train to death, the man of the mist whispered. Once you board that train, you are on your way to the final stop trail of the bat beasts is like a slap in the face with non-stop pulse-pounding pulp actions shot directly out of the late 1930s. In his first full-length adventure, Ralph Thorne, a wealthy industrialist whose secret identity is the man of the mist, embarks on a trail of vengeance against the person or creature that murdered close friend and News Tribune editorial cartoonist Thomas Walker. Thorne uses his amazing skills to literally listen in on the brains of his enemies in their own homes in order to track down criminal perpetrators of evil and bring them to their end of the line, justice. A master of mind control who can create and move invisibly through dense fog and mist, Thorne, aided by his beautiful blonde assistant Moxie Malone, Battles a criminal organization that uses horrifying monsters to terrorize the big city. Human-faced bat creatures on a mission of mass murder and a shroud-wearing banshee with incredible powers. News Tribune publisher Lon Graham had advised the editorial cartoonist to show no mercy to local politicians. But after Walker is murdered, It is the man of the mist who sets out to show no mercy to crooked elected officials, mobsters, murderers, and those who prey on the innocent. But with all of his amazing mind-control abilities, can he defeat a long-dead evil with power beyond even the man of the mist's comprehension? And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Trail of the Bat Beasts.
1: Chapter 1 THE ART OF DEATH Crime is the train to death. Once you board that train, you are on your way to the final stop. Many criminals have heard the man of the mist disembodied deep voice utter these words, but few have lived to tell about it. After many years, we are now able to reveal that dashing industrialist Ralph Thorne was secretly the man of the mist a champion of justice who was able to control men's minds as he vanished into a swirling gray cloud. Thorne had learned mind manipulation from voodoo priestess Ayida Patel while they were both in prison somewhere along the Amazon River in the late 1920s. An old college friend who had claimed he discovered a plant in the rainforest which he alleged had the ability to cure infantile paralysis had lured the industrialists to the lush yet deadly jungle. Once he arrived, the friend knocked him out and turned him over to an evil warden of a privately funded prison farm. The friend then returned to America to collect a large bounty paid by one of Thorne's competitors. Aida was a beautiful Cajun practitioner of medicinal voodoo from Louisiana who, like Thorne, ran into a violent power struggle with a competitor who made her fortune through dark, mystic intimidation and murder. Although the priestess was knowledgeable in her art and power, her opponent was ruthless and paid traitors to destroy her in her own home. Aida was drugged and sent to the Amazon prison. She and Thorne became allies in their desires to escape and find revenge against the enemies responsible for their tortuous incarceration. The industrialist's high intelligence and desire for vengeance helped him learn Aida's voodoo secrets of controlling the thoughts of others. after a long period of teaching planning and working together the two became more than just allies the lovers angers desires and minds became one and they were ready to take on the world to achieve justice a perfect night to carry out their plan arrived the guards had been celebrating the arrival of a large shipment of rum the inmates were quiet exhausted from a long day's work in the jungle Thorn and the priestess were able to unite their mystic abilities and create a cloud of confusion in order to escape the hellhole Husgal, while releasing the rest of the unlawfully imprisoned victims and killing many of their evil tormentors in the process. Unfortunately, Thorn survived to reach civilization without Aida, as she fell victim to an enemy with minds that couldn't be manipulated, a school of deadly piranhas. They had stolen a boat and were hurrying to escape poison darts being blown at them by pastaza headhunters along the riverside. The priestess was struck in the back by a dart which caused her to fall into the Black River. Thorne always remembered her final scream as she sank under the thrashing blood-red water. Part of him died with her in that deadly river. Upon returning home, Thorne stepped back into his position as chairman of Thorne Industries, Once again, the formerly attired industrialist epitomized the image of a successful businessman. He nourished the facade of being a wealthy playboy with no other interest beyond profits and having a good time. However, with the help of his spunky secretary, Moxie Malone, he secretly embarked on a quest to track down criminals and bring them to justice, starting with two very specific targets. Within a week, he encountered his former friend hiding underground in an abandoned gold mine in the Cascade Mountains of Northern California. When confronted, that friend was only too glad to explain his actions and inform on his benefactor before he accidentally slipped and fell to his death in a deep vertical mine shaft. And oddly enough, the man who paid him was reported missing that very week. It's suspected that his body may have been encased in tons of cement, during the construction of a children's hospital. The man with the ability to vanish into a moving cloud of mist continued his vigilance in bringing those who do evil to their final rewards. Almost 10 years after his return from the Amazon, the man of the mist embarked on one of his most dangerous and mysterious adventures. News Tribune editorial cartoonist Thomas Walker stood in his small office defiantly facing his managing editor, Hal Wesley, across his drawing desk. The two men were having their daily battle. Walker had completed his hard-hitting political illustration, and Wesley was second-guessing it. Thirty-six-year-old Walker was well over six feet tall, as trim as the thin man William Powell wished he was, had curly red hair, a well-trimmed mustache, and in this case, clenched fists. Wesley, who was completely bald, almost a head shorter, and grimacing through his puffy face, which contained a large lump of veins and blackheads shaped like a nose, screamed his side of the discussion through his raspy, cigarette-and burbid-dabbaged throat. "'What is it with you and the mayor?' asked the editor, who had just celebrated a half-century of life. "'Jack Slocum has calmed the city down. Since he took office, we haven't had any of the riotous council battles that City Hall used to be known for.' That's because he's a dictator, and the councilmen are either too stupid or too afraid to challenge him, Walker said. Our metropolis is being controlled by a political machine, and Slocum is its tool. With stage one of their daily argument out of the way, Wesley pushed his rolled-up sleeves a tad higher and advanced to stage two. Your character of the mayor doesn't even look like him. I could go out in that newsroom right now and see how many reporters recognize sloppy Slocum. But if you could do better, let's see your artwork. Apparently you must have talents we've never seen. Everyone says you should be able to do something other than butcher reporters copy. Thus ended stage two. Well I think your cartoon's undignified, said the editor, with grey cigar ashes smeared down the left front of his brown vest. Precisely, Walker offered. It's a silly illustration of the mayor behaving exactly like the mayor behaved at last night's council meeting. Then turn it in to be shot, Wesley said, as he briskly turned around and left the office. He then stuck his head back in through the door and said, you're on thin ice, boy. One of these days you'll piss off the wrong reader and it'll be you and not the cartoon that gets shot. Walker smiled and handed his illustration to a copy boy who had immediately rushed into the room after most likely having listened to the whole debate from outside the office. The cartoonist was elated at having once again made his point over Wesley's alleged concerns. He knew that the editor only went through the motions of objecting to his work so he could tell the mayor he had done his best, but the publisher wants a lively opinion page discussion. After hearing the same story again and again, Slocum had all but given up on complaining to Wesley. He had tried to get to the publisher, but was told to direct his complaints to the editor. Slocum was unaware that the publisher was truly unbiased. He hated all politicians equally. Another thing Slocum never realized was that it was his behavior that made Walker's work so simple. The little gray-haired mayor in the loud-colored shirt was a walking cartoon. The man had to be colorblind in that nothing he ever wore matched He would jump all over people at the council meetings for things he didn't understand, and when someone tried to explain an issue to him, he would really go into his wounded cabaret girl act and prance all around the dais complaining that the world was out to get him while his sycophantic councilmen shook their heads and clucked their tongues. Yes, Slocum may have been a crook, but he was also God's gift to a newspaper editorial cartoonist. Walker buttoned his collar Cinched his tie and put on his jacket and fedora. He felt fine as he walked through the newsroom, nodding to a few of the reporters who were banging out their efforts on deadline. His workday was over and life was good, he thought. He planned on asking his girlfriend, Annie, out for dinner. He knew she would love it. They had been going together for almost a year and things were getting serious. Being a newspaper editorial cartoonist was the culmination of a dream for the young man. He had struggled through many jobs before he landed at the News Tribune. Following a hitch in the Army, Walker had worked in a machine shop at nights while he attended art school. Then he became a cameraman's assistant in a magazine art department for a short time, followed by various low-level advertising graphic positions. Whenever he wasn't working, he schlepped around a portfolio filled with political and gag cartoons to daily, weekly, and monthly publications. Those efforts finally paid off when he dropped in unannounced to show his work to a daily newspaper publisher, Lon Graham, who gave him his big break and told him to show no mercy on local politicians. He thought about his depiction of Mayor Slocum's behavior and knew he was continuing to carry out the publisher's wishes. Thoughts of having a pleasant dinner with Annie also brightened the artist's demeanor as he left the newsroom. The young man didn't wait for the elevator. He chose to take the classic formal stairway down to the newspaper's grand lobby. As he descended, he always looked at the large lion with the lighted torch in its mouth, the newspaper symbol tiled into the center of the lobby floor. A line-shot drawing of the lion appeared on the News Tribune flag as a message to readers that the publication would shine its light on the world without fear. Walker always felt that it was his job to do exactly that. He grabbed an early edition of the paper as he walked out the door into the quiet dusk. The top stories were the usual. Once again, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain flailed foolish remarks at anyone not as naive as he. Entertainer Eddie Cantor expressed enthusiasm for a successful first year for the March of Dimes assault on polio. And the ex-wife of a violent criminal awaiting trial reported that her loved one had vanished from the local jail and she was concerned for his safety, which didn't seem like a big problem. The first two articles included posed photos of Chamberlain and Cantor, while the third featured a mugshot of the missing crook. The streetlights had just come on, and shops were beginning to close, when Walker bumped into a pole as he tried to read while walking. He blushed and looked around to make sure no one saw his blunder, then realized he was standing in front of Clyde's newsstand. "'Well, hello, Clyde,' Walker said with a smile. "'It's kind of quiet out here this evening. Are you doing any business?' The 30-foot-long newsstand held quite a selection of publications that provided a meager living for the 12-year-old proprietor. Clyde had operated the business on his own for two years, ever since a thief garnered $11.37 after fatally shooting the young man's father. "'Things are fine, Mr. Walker,' Clyde said. "'I can never sell you a newspaper, but how about a mystery magazine?' "'That's a swell idea, Clyde,' Walker said." "'I'll take that new issue of the Hollywood Cowboy Detectives. "'They get into some exciting adventures. "'That's one of my favorites. That'll be a dime.' "'The cartoonist tossed the boy a quarter. "'Keep the change.' "'Thanks, Mr. Walker,' Clyde said as he handed him the pulp "'and tossed the coin into a cigar box. "'I really liked your last cartoon. "'You sure got that mayor's number.' "'The man and the boy both noticed a darkness "'that quickly covered the area. "'Looking up, they saw the street lights dim and then go out.' A cold breeze swirled around them. What the heck? Walker said as Clyde started dropping the covers over his racks to protect his publications from the storm or whatever was happening. Look! Clyde yelled as he locked the last flap in place over his racks and closed the front of his stand. Walker saw what Clyde was pointing at. A swirling gray cloud was circling above them like the center of a whirlwind. It dropped and created a moving wall of mist all around them. Holy guano droppings, Clyde said. What's that? A large, human-sized, flying creature with black, bat-like wings, red eyes, and sharp talons dropped out of the gray cloud to grab Walker by his shoulder and lift him into the air. The creature had mangy-pointed ears, but the face of a man with a very large nose, that is, until it opened its mouth to show teeth, that belonged at the museum of the skeleton of a saber-toothed cat. Yellow slime drooled off the ends of its fangs and onto Walker's jacket. The creature took a moment to push its prodigious nose against the man's face. It snarled, reached down with one claw, grabbed Walker's right hand, and with a quick and deadly movement, sliced off the cartoonist's fingers. Then it silenced his screams with the snap of its jaws. Clyde stood stone still as he watched Walker's head fall back from where the beast had bitten out most of his neck. The black-furred nightmare with red foam cascading off its lips turned to confront the boy. The creature's eyes grew wide as it bent forward to snapping distance of the newsboy's face. One leather-winged arm reached out, and a sharp talon touched Clyde's chin. The human-like face smiled closely at the frightened boy, showing its dripping fangs and lisped with a foul-smelling, gravelly voice, "'Next time you die!' Instantly the creature spread its wings and launched itself into the swirling gray mist that then receded into the night sky. The street lights popped, fizzled, and came back on, illuminating the quiet, empty neighborhood and a brutally murdered man Lying in the blood soaked gutter.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Trail of the Bat Beasts. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.